Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. A little bonus episode for you post-US Open. Uh, this is Gil Hans. Interview with Gil Hans coming shortly. He was fantastic. We tried to get him on. Uh, leading up to the U.S. Open, he said, I'm, you know, he's got a lot going on. I'd love to do a recap, and I think this actually ended up working out even better. We had a lot to react to from Bryson's triumph at Wingfoot, a lot on course setup and design and the greens. And for all the discussion we had about it, we should have just probably called him one of the nights and just had him go through everything for us. So I think this is extremely enlightening. A quick video programming note before we get to our conversation with Gil. Uh, excited to announce our third installment of our What's in the Bag and Why series is dropping tomorrow. It might already be up by the time you're listening to this. Featuring yours truly. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, always amazing. We get so many questions, so many requests for a What's in the Bag video. Uh, a lot of questions on our clubs. We also get a lot of questions on our shoes. Most of us usually are wearing something from Quater. I know Tron, he loves the wild card, the lightless, spikeless shoe uh, that he, he says he just wants to drink beers and hang. That's the shoe he wears. As opposed to the Quater Legend, which is uh, Quater's take on the traditional tour-style shoe, he says he wears that when he's getting you know serious about his game. So Neil loves the Ringer, uh, which is a more athletic-looking spike shoe. Uh, I prefer the legend because I take things way too seriously, um, as you might be aware of. Uh, the shoes are incredibly comfortable, stylish, with the, all the technical elements you need to help you play your best. I'll say this about the legend. It, they look big, clunky, heavy. They are some of the most, maybe the most comfortable golf shoe I've ever worn. Good news. First-time customers get 15% off their purchase when they visit Quater.com. Uh, like like most of our advertisers, I don't know why all of our advertisers. It's it's a it's a name you need to spell out. So we'll spell it out for you. C U A T E R dot com. Quater dot com. You don't need a, a discount code or anything. You get fifteen percent off your first Quater purchase at Quater dot com. Without any further delay, here is Gil Hans. So what's it like to see your work on display for the world to see? I know you're not the, uh, the original designer of Wingfoot, but it is your restoration work uh, on display uh, on television at the U.S. Open. What's that like uh, you know, for you to watch that? Um, you know, exciting, first and foremost, a little nerve-wracking, um, but ultimately truly rewarding um, you know, to see the golf course, especially the way that Steve Rabideau and his team uh, – presented it. It was amazing. And, uh, yeah, it was fun to watch. But like you said, if, uh, if everything went right in this, it was all, it was ultimately all about tilling and not about, uh, not about Gil Hans or Jim Wagner. So I think that also went really well. Yeah. But Rabido has to, he has to resign now, right? Didn't he say he was going to resign if the winning score was under par? <laughs> I didn't hear that. His urban legend just grows more and more and more with everything I hear. <laughs> Maybe he did say that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past him. But I. I didn't hear that. Were you in any way, either positively or negatively, surprised at the scoring? Anything that kind of jumped out at you as uh, something you weren't maybe expecting? You know, I. I think it, it, it all ultimately came down to to one player, and um, yeah, I think what he did to with the golf course, to the golf course, however you want to put it, and and ultimately his. Uh, final score was yeah it was surprising it was um 
something that I was skeptical about at the start of the week when he proclaimed what he was going to do out there. And, uh, but like a lot of the pundits, I was, I was absolutely wrong. So I think that part of it was definitely surprising the way the rest of the field handled it. And, um, you know, ultimately the rest of the scores all being, you know, only one player at even par, everybody else over par, I think was probably more in line with what we thought the entire field would, would do. Yeah. I want to kind of get into some of that, but I want to kind of first go back and and you just understand what goes into you know a restoration with something like Wingfoot. What's that proposal like? How detailed is your plan? Do they come to you saying, "Hey, this is exactly what we want," and you're the guy to actually shape it and do all that? Do you have kind of do you come to them with ideas and say, "Hey, I'd love to do this here"? What's what's that look like? I'm sure it varies from club to club, but for Wingfoot specifically, what was that like? Yeah, I think uh, if I remember correctly, it was about nine years ago. I think they interviewed three or four architects. They uh, asked each of us to to look at uh, both the east and the west and give them an idea of what we thought uh, needed to be done. And you know, like every other project that we do on these great old historic courses, if uh, you know it's tilling has to wingfoot, but whether it's Rainer or Ross or whatever, it's it's always in our mind first and foremost about the original architect. And we always are straight up and say, listen, if you want us to put back. A.W. Tillinghast, as he did it at Wingfoot, we're excited and we'd love to be involved. If you're looking for Gil Hans's interpretation uh, of, of Wingfoot or Tillinghast, then you got the wrong guys because that's really not what we're, we're trying to do here. Hmm. That's interesting because I, I, I'd imagine it's I, I, I thought you were going to go a different direction with that. Honestly, I thought you were going to say if you're looking for Tillinghast, like that kind of, you know, what what he intended is no longer you know, how golf is played and you almost need to put your interpretation on it to try to, you know, instill the principles and the philosophy and the strategy that he intended, but with modern technology, is that, uh, is that something that you ultimately end up doing? And maybe that's just not kind of the way you frame it. The, yes, there, there certainly is that, but it's all within the context of what did Tillinghast do. So, I mean, if Tillinghast had a bunker down the left-hand side of the fairway, just because that was the preferred angle into the green and it happened to be at 240 yards and we could pick that bunker up and move it to 320 well we feel like we're still interpreting what he was trying to do but only shifting it in line for you know where the modern player hits it now if moving it to 320 means we had to put it over a ridge or over a hill and you couldn't see it well then we wouldn't do it like i mean a perfect example was the fourth hole uh, at wingfoot west and you saw the guys kind of bombing it over the bunkers well we just couldn't push them any further hmm. because it was over the brow of a hill and we would have had to raise them so ridiculously high out of the ground they wouldn't have looked like any other bunker at wingfoot in order for you to see them off the tee so we basically had to say okay this is as far as we can go we can't push 4t back because you'd be pushing it right into the middle of the third hole so we're kind of stuck here and in our mind it's better to be stuck and be truthful to tilling us original presentation style, et cetera, than to bastardize that and, you know, push it down where, where the guys are going to hit it. Now, other holes like second hole had a, you know, tilling us had a bunker on the outside of the dog leg that we were able to move down, you know, and it was perfectly in play for, for everybody in the field, even the longest hitter. So, if, you know, when you can do that or when you can move a tee back, you absolutely do it, but you don't do it in a fashion. Well, Telling us had a bunker on the left, but I think it'd be better to have a bunker on the right. So we just move that bunker across the way. We, you know, we would we would never do that. Mm -hmm. Well, is is it fair to say that if you were, you know, if you were coming in to re 
model wing foot or you know for the u.s open if you were going to be doing something to, specific to the u.s open and not trying to stay true to Tillinghast principles that would that look drastically different than kind of what a, a restoration project would look like no i don't think so because you know until this week i always thought it was about you know thick rough and, and firm greens and wind um you know you've got some air movement is really the only way to challenge these these golfers. I think you know they're they're so good at what they do, and they're they, they're it's just you can't make a golf course long enough. And I think it, so. Ultimately, when you combine what we thought was you know very penal rough at winged foot with you know greens that got firm because we rebuilt them to the same kind, greens that have contours that are just amazing, and probably if you if we built those or Corden Crenshaw built those or Tom Doak or anybody built greens like that in this day and age, we'd probably get crucified. Hmm. So I felt like those were, you know, the defenses were all in place, the ones that you would traditionally rely on. So I always believed that, you know, those guys of that era built golf purely for golf, right? There were no real estate developments. There were no posters or calendars or hey we need a waterfall or we need a flower arrangement here in order to take a good photo so we can quote unquote have a signature hole none of that ever entered their minds nor should it any modern architect but it does um and so by restoring what they built generally speaking it still is applicable to today because it's predicated on first and foremost you know what we think is good golf architecture and what we think is good for the playing of, of the game and so just by stretching it you know, repositioning things yet still keeping basically all of the tenets and, and all of the philosophies that they preached in place. I think every great old modern golf course, if you can stretch it, is still applicable to today's the way they play today. Hmm. Well, so I don't think it's technically your job to challenge the best players in the world. I mean, you were, you were in charge of, you know, the renovation restoration of this golf course. And I think that's essentially where where I think your job ended. And I want to divide those out specifically because I think it, those in charge of course setup and tournament setup are the ones that are you know setting this up for the U.S. Open. So I'll just ask it this way. How, how do you view, if you were in charge of setup this week, how would you challenge the best players in the world and kind of put into context what you think the, the actual challenges of the golf course were for the players this past week. Maybe exclude one guy from it. Uh, just talk about the rest <laughs> of the field. But what, what, what are the challenges these guys are overcoming? So I think one of the things that, um, you know, any good architect or good architecture provides multiple options for setup. So, and then you're right. It's ultimately up to the guys who are in charge of setting it up to set up whatever challenge they want to create. They want to create an easy challenge. They want to create a hard one. But as long as the architecture provides them the variety necessary to, to do that, then I think it's good architecture. But ultimately, like you said, the way it plays is based on the setup, guys. And I think I felt like they, they pretty much got everything right. Uh, I know there was some discussion about the first day and some of the ease of the whole locations. And, um, you know, could they have found some more difficult ones that day? Maybe. You know, certainly they could have. But, you know, when they, they go into a week, they basically have a game plan and they don't – they vary it based on the weather. They they hopefully don't vary it based on whether a guy shot well or, you know, that sort of reactionary stuff I don't think is good for promoting the quality of the architecture. I think it's just, okay, here's our game plan. If Mother Nature allows us to execute it, 
then let's execute it and let's go. Let's, you know, let's go forward. And I think ultimately the first day setup was probably maybe a little bit softer, no pun intended, than, than, than they might have wanted. It was a little bit sticky, the humidity, blah, blah, blah. So, so I think accepting the, the sort of the relative ease of the first day, I, th- I think they just nailed it the rest of the way. And they allowed the golf course to, the, the phrase they use is come to them. You know, the golf course came to them. It just kind of day by day got harder and harder and et cetera. And I think that, you know, what, what we saw at winged foot, which was, I don't know if anybody touched on this on the broadcast, but it was one of those things where, all right, you, you almost had a, a golf course that was perfectly susceptible to what happened. Um, from the standpoint of all of the greens slope severely from back to front. Okay. So even if you're hitting out of the rough, you're landing it into a severe upslope. So you're going to take a lot of the juice off of that shot. All right. And a lot of the greens at wing foot are open in the front. So if you can judge distance to land a ball short and then allow the green, you know, the contour of the green to kind of absorb the speed of the shot or the, you know, the lack of spin and then just get your aim right. And, you know, one of the things that they did also didn't talk much about is, is frequently those guys missed on the wrong the, the right side of the fairway. Mm-hmm. If they're going to miss in the rough, they were missing left and the pin was right, or uh, vice versa. And I don't know if that was – they were try, I don't, obviously they were trying to hit the fairway. But, you know, those guys are so good that they know, okay, my miss has got to be – if I'm going to miss, it's got to be left because it's the right pin. So I think the combination of the strength, the technology – the architecture being open in front, which is again great old classic architecture, the greens being that severely pitched towards them, allowed some of those players in particular to be really successful out of the rough because they're basically hitting eight or nine irons into it. And it was something that I never thought of going into the week. It didn't really, you know, firmness on greens is definitely a big defense against that class of player, but it doesn't really matter how firm the greens are if, you know, there's sloping at you at four four and five percent or even steeper that's where i i think the golf course if they wanted to just make it winged foot in general harder and you could make the greens smaller and you could not have the run-up areas in front right it's not like there's not like there aren't answers to that the question to that i would say to that is like what does that make a better golf tournament does that make a better test of golf does that make it better architecture and i i definitely don't think so i think uh, you know, it, having those options and the different pins and making sure you are still restore, like maintaining that the angles are mattering. And you, your, to your point there, it probably wasn't emphasized enough. Be, you know, making sure guys are missing on the right, the proper side of the fairway was made a big difference. And, you know, Wolf being able to hit two fairways on Saturday and actually be able to shoot, shoot 65. Uh, so kind of help us with, we had a lot of internal debating this past week on, and we're not agronomy experts. So I think, we were, you know, going back and forth on whether or not the greens could have been pushed harder, how Thursday happened, how it was so soft. Can you talk to us about what it's like that climate, September uh, in New York, with that kind of temperature, that rain schedule they had leading up to it? Just set the scene for why the greens were the way they were. Could they have been pushed harder? Is that realistic? And, and kind of help settle all that debate, basically. <laughs> sure. I, I, I talked to Steve Rabideau this morning, and he said the greens were doing great. So could they have been pushed harder? Yes, because they're they're in great health right now. He doesn't really, he's not worried about them bouncing back. Um, you know, sometimes you come out of a major championship and it takes a long time for them to bounce back, but he seemed very comfortable that they would bounce back. And a lot of that, has to do with September. I think 
I think what 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 happened uh, on, on Thursday was it was the last sort of warm and a warm in a relative term day, and there was still some pretty high humidity, and so I think overnight. You know, they had built up sort of, they do all this testing on, on firmness and the thump meter and, and uh, moisture content in the greens. And and I think they felt like they were in a pretty good place going into Thursday night, or sorry, into Wednesday night. And then I think the dew points changed and they got a lot more humidity and a lot more moisture on the greens that morning. And so I think they started off a lot softer. And then on Thursday, if you remember, the wind didn't blow at all. And help with help me with that because that's what I've tried to make this case to Randy and Tron that like wind is what <laughs> is going to dry out greens and that's going to like so help me there. Yeah, it does. I mean, it definitely dries out the surface. I mean, everything about these greens was constructed. You know, they were constructed with sand underneath and drainage, so we're basically drying down the the profile of the soil is all what's happening underneath but the surface itself if there's high humidity and a little bit of dew and and in the morning then i think some of that just it's just residually is part of the the plant um you know you're 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 taking a you're whipping them off you're mowing them you're rolling them as well so it's not like the dew is sitting on there when the first guys you know you're not seeing dew a little pass for the first putt on the on the group first group out but there's still enough moisture in there. And, and to be honest, I think part of what the USGA is, is trying to do in their setup is to, to ensure that they don't have dead greens at the end because no club is really going to want to have that. So I think, as, as I said, you, you start off with a game plan on Wednesday going into Thursday thinking it's going to be X and then, you know, it turns out to be Y. And then, you know, there were a couple, they expected a little different. They expected some wind. It didn't happen. So they put some whole locations that, you know, and it, and it it was just a confluence of a couple of events, but then at the end of the day, you know, the way the way the wind blew on Friday and the way they were able to dry down the golf course, uh, I don't think they watered anything. They maybe gave them a spritz after play, um, you know, going into the evening, but there was definitely no moisture in the plant uh, the, the next morning. Does it seem like it? It, it seems to me that that line of balance is so tight and that the difference really was whether the wind laid down six, seven miles an hour less than they thought on Thursday. But it really does seem that small of a change can dictate a huge swing in scorability, firmness, accessibility to some of these pins, whether or not balls are catching some of these bowls and funneling back to pins and all that. Is that fair to say that, you know, with the skill level of these guys and how tight and how difficult the maintenance is of these golf courses, that six or seven miles an hour wind can make that much of a difference? Yes, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched the last five years um, in my role. My, my very short TV career um, when Fox had the U.S. Open, you know, uh, doing watching every morning set up and going through all the meetings and everything. And, and I've watched the level of detail that these guys have. And, and you're right. I mean, it can just it's it's such a fine line and such a razor's edge that that, that they're balancing this on. And, and sometimes it can go bad, which we, we, we've seen. And I know the USG doesn't want that to happen. And I think one of the, the great testaments about the golf course is that, you know, we went through this whole tournament and guys got got bloodied by a golf course and not a single one of them really complained about it. Right. You know, they were all pretty accepting of their fate and said, hey, you know, if I'd played better, I probably could have scored better out there. Yeah, it, it that's where I netted out. It felt like a great test. Some guys will say like, hey, if they're not complaining, then something's wrong with it. But I, I, I generally, I know a lot of players, you know, people 
don't necessarily always side with the players when they complain about setup. But for the most part, these guys know what they're talking about. They're not asking for it to be, you know, TPC and dead soft and all that. They like a good, firm, difficult challenge as long as things, I guess, help me with that. Fair versus unfair. Uh, you know, some people will say, why does it matter? Like everyone's got to play the same golf course. I, I've kind of made my, my stance on that pretty clear uh, as to what the difference is between fair and unfair. But in, in your mind, what is it? Uh, you know, I think for, as it relates to tour players, I think they they appropriately look at it as say we you know we're not not in an arrogant way, but they're the best players in the world, and if they can't play something or something is unplayable for them, then you know what are we doing out here? I mean, how what what does that mean from a setup perspective? So I think they don't like to be embarrassed, number one, and they don't like it when there's just something that you know even you or I or anybody could look at it and say there's just something clearly wrong if if the best players in the world can't even get close to this or or it's just not working out for them so i i think that draws the line and i think you you'll you know you can tell the difference between when they're you know whining about something that's not right versus you know when they have a legitimate complaint and i think you know what they what they saw out there this week was was hard but you know fair, i hate the word fair but you know, golf isn't fair, but I think they, they felt like there were opportunities to play the whole if you hit excellent golf shots. I think if they feel like if they hit an excellent golf shot and, and the only thing that happens is they're punished instead of you know potentially rewarded, then that's when they feel like it's crossed the line. And, and by excellent shot, you, ju- you don't just mean I hit it a great seven iron right at the flag and it went over. It, it also means the proper shot, you know, and if there's if there's not a possibility for a proper shot I think that is where I think most if not everyone can agree that's when the unfair factor is I I don't I love seeing you know a guy thinking he can pull off a certain shot and land it in a spot and it doesn't work out because he didn't see the other route to the hole but if there isn't another route to the hole I think that's kind of where I net out it's like all right that's when the golf gets kind of silly I agree okay Uh, yeah I agree wholeheartedly and I you know we you know, you know it when you see it. I guess is 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 it's it's that's a subjective way, but I think golfers in general know and understand what that means. Yep. Right, I want to talk a little bit more about what you did, kind of mostly with the greens uh, at Wingfoot, and then I want to kind of get back into course setups and kind of what you got going on in Frisco and how that's all going to be addressed and how how pro golf is going to you know fold out, uh, fall out over the next couple of years, but. So going back, it seems to me big emphasis on tree removal and green renovation. How, how did you come up with the greens that we ultimately saw last week at Wingfoot? Did they, you know, did they, the greens just used to be way bigger and slowly got smaller over time and you just restored them? Did you have plans to work off of? Were they, you know, a bit of an interpretation? Kind of take us to how you would describe the work you did on the greens at Wingfoot. So it was it was completely uh, restoring, recapturing space that had been lost over time. I mean, it's just literally, you know, you lose an inch of green space ever for ninety years. You're gonna lose a lot of green space, and I think you know, there was never any nefarious plan to to make them smaller or to change them. It was just evolution. Uh, that combined with you know bunker splashing, really kind of forming some stronger slopes feeding into the greens, eliminated a lot of you know, edge hole locations, which you saw them use quite a bit of um, this week. So it was it was really studying old photographs. We had a great set of photographs. Neil Regan, the, the club historian, was it was amazing. Anytime we'd ask uh, Seamus Maley, who was our guy on site, and Jim Wagner and I, anytime we'd ask for something, he'd find it. And we had, we so we used 
opening day photos for the scale and the size and the sort of the, the, the relationship, the, the horizon lines on the greens, the, you know, how the edges of the greens interface with the bunkers. And then we used um, the aerial photographs from when Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open in 1929 when he played in the playoff with Al Espinosa. They had aerial shots, and they basically had, you know, point to point. A, you know, Jones hit it here, Espinosa hit it here, dot, 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 for all 18 holes. So that gave us the actual shapes and uh, rectangular nature of a lot of the greens that we saw. So the combination of, of those things, and then Neil Regan would work with us out there. We'd be shoveling and raking, and he'd say, well, my intuition says this. And good God, he was almost right all the time. It was amazing. So, I mean, it was really, we were lucky to have all of that sort of information at our fingertips and be able to, to work our way through it. Somebody asked me prior to the, the championship, you know, did you spend a lot of time studying the, you know, the 2006 U.S. Open, the setup and the program? I said, no, we actually spent a lot of time studying the 1929 U.S. Open program. And that was really where we got most of our information. Hmm. What, what was, you know, for people that if the 2006 U.S. Open isn't at the top of people's minds, what, what is the big difference in how it all, how it played out, how the greens were, you know, because to be honest, I don't really, I'd have to go watch the highlights to go, you know, see what was starkly different and maybe you really truly ignored it more than, uh, you know, more than used it. But what, what, would, what would be the big difference? Well, I think the the size and the scale of the greens, we added probably about 20, 20 to 30% on almost every single green. So they're significantly larger. And and I think really you know, when we talk about scoring, the greens were in perfect condition. I mean, they were so good. And these guys are so good that if they, you know, if they read the line right, they're generally putting the ball on the line that they read. And when the greens are this pure, it, if it, if they've got the right read, it's going in the hole. And so I think that was discounted because my understanding, everything I've read and seen that in, in 06, the greens were really bumpy. And that, you know, by the time the leaders got on, one of the caddies, I think it was Ian Poulter's caddy said, hey, you know, if the greens were really good, the winning score would have been, you know, even or one under or two under or something like that. So I think it was, it was a combination of uh, just pure putting surfaces and, um, you know, and more of them, uh, what we thought were some really interesting home locations. The thing I found most fascinating was just the way these guys, they were really observant at utilizing slopes and backboards and bowls and funnels. I heard, you know, all kinds of descriptions of the contours around the greens, but I thought we saw, saw some of the most creative play. You know, we all, I always look forward to that at Augusta National. You know, when a guy hits a putt and he's got his back turned to the hole, it's kind of fun to see how they visualize that stuff. Well, we saw a lot of that at Wingfoot. I was hopeful that would happen going into the championship, and it was it was pretty cool that it actually did. Yeah, I think you answered a lot of my next question was just how how in general do you think the Greens played for the championship? Did the did you uh, did you feel like that the intent and the design behind them was well executed? Yes, yeah, I, I do. I think you know again, all credit to Steve and his team. They. They had them singing and they got firm towards the end, almost, you know, to a point where I was watching the play into 18 and, you know, that's the traditional Sunday hole location. It's where Bobby Jones made the, you know, the great putt to, to force the play off. And, but I almost feel like with the, the expanded greens and the firmness of them, that that hole location was pretty playing pretty benign because the guys could just throw it all the way behind it and let it basically come all. We saw guy after guy after guy doing that. So it was, it was a little bit different than it had been in the, in the past, but 
you know, so maybe I'll have to rethink that Sunday hole location. Well, how much of the renovation would you say was for the U.S. Open for this past weekend? And how much is it for member play? What And what's it like striking that balance? I mean, from from what I gather, the, the members like the course tough and they want it to be tough, which hopefully makes it easier uh, for you to blend the two. But, you know, how, how do you consciously go through as you're going through a project like that? How do you balance the two? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. And I think it all ultimately comes back to the first thing we talked about is, you know, our charge is to put back Tillinghast. It's not to put it back for the U.S. Open or put it back for the members. It's to put it back because it, it was a great design and, and it it worked for every class of golfer. Now at Wingfoot, it's a little bit easier because everybody expects it to be tough. The members like it to be tough. They, they don't complain about it. The guests all expect when they show up, they're going to get beat up and that's okay. So you're it's not like you don't have to think about what the average member or the average guest, how they play it. We do, but it ultimately is, is, you know, at winged foot, it's all about championship golf. And so I think we would tend to skew much more in that direction than if we were say restoring a golf course and, and, you know, their highest aspirations were like a state open or a state amateur or something, then you might skew it a little bit more towards, um, you know, towards member play. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna work this back around back into the U.S. Open as we go uh, to just discuss the future of the game, technology, U.S. Opens, setup, all that. Um, but you're currently working on, and correct me if I'm wrong, the the new PGA Championship course, the East Course uh, in Frisco. Yes. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with what what's going on there, I'm wondering if you can kind of take us to what uh, what what kind of work you're doing there, and I'm just want to pick your brain on. The, the, if I may define it this way, and you may define it a different way, but this golf course is basically being designed to host, you know, large championships. What goes into that building of something like that for the modern day professional player? What are you putting in play to challenge these guys? And we can kind of bring that back around into talking about how how the challenge is kind of playing out on classic golf courses. But what are you, what are you doing to challenge the you know the top premier player in the game at somewhere like Frisco? So, yeah, you're right. And it's uh, the golf course is complete. Um, we have to grass a couple fairways, but the, you know, all the construction is, is pretty much done. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because as you mentioned, we're not only hosting the PGA championship, but we're hosting the senior PGA championship and the KPMG women's uh, PGA championship. So we, and then we're having resort play. So it's one of those things, one of the things that Jim Wagner and I talked a lot about there is, all right, if we can find a, a, a grass, uh, which we, we did was Northbridge Bermuda, that we can have it be basically a hybrid golf course that, you know, if we want it's so it's wall to wall Bermuda. If we want to grow the rough up and bring and narrow the fairways, we just basically set a new fairway line for, let's say for the men. And then if we want to widen it out, for the seniors, we can do that. So we have, we're utilizing the, the turf itself to basically, you know, be a, a hybrid where it can move in and out and we can reset angles. Um, we've reset, you know, we've built bunkers now that are, you know, carrying at 340 uh, from the back tees because that's what, what happens. Um, in Frisco, we're going to be really fortunate. It's a windy site you know, as most golf courses in Texas are. So we've utilized the wind in, in different ways. You know, we've changed a lot of change of direction. Um, some of the longest holes play into the wind and uphill. Uh, we just feel like that, you know, you don't want to build, if, if you build every hard hole downwind or down downhill, then you're basically build, 
building a bunch of medium length holes. So we really have taken, uh, I think it was Pete Dye talked a lot about that, make the hard holes hard and, and go from there. But we do have a lot of variety. I mean, the golf course, if you play from the tips to the back hole locations can play probably up to 7,900 yards. So it's, you know, it's going to be all that they want in the wind down there. So I think it's, it's a combination of having that flexibility, the ability um, to allow setup. Um, one of the things we did at, um, at at the Olympic course in Rio, and Kerry Haig did the setup there, and Kerry Haig will be involved in the uh, the setup at um, at this golf course in Frisco, is that you know we we tried to give him as much variety. We've created really really difficult hole locations on each green, and each, and then we've created some easier ones, and we've you know given him lots of lots of different ways to set up the golf course as i mentioned earlier you know if you set it up as hard as you want set it up as easy as you want so i think we'll have a ton of options for him uh and ways that he can set up the golf course and i think you know the length the wind and and the ability to move the grass in and out is probably about as good as we can do hmm. does what we saw this past weekend does it you know, change in your mind in any way or make you start thinking about, you know, do we have things backwards maybe trying to set up some of these golf courses for professional golfers? Not, I mean that in terms of, you know, both where your job, you know, applies and just in general with tournament golf where you have nothing to do with it. What what do you think would be a solution or anything you would do like to see done differently uh, with course setups other than long and narrow fairways like we saw at Wingfoot? Yeah, it's it's difficult because we're you know we we've had these uh, times in you know and maybe not to this extreme um, in golf where you know we everybody you know can we tiger proof golf courses you know and now are we going to be can we Bryson proof them is this you know we're we're ultimately talking you know about one guy and but of all of a sudden you start to see every kid that comes out of college trying to do this or this becomes I mean Matt Wolf obviously hit it a, a long way and as you mentioned his Saturday round was you know was pretty epic um I I honestly don't know I, I mean I followed Bryson's group around on Thursday and Friday cuz you know he had these proclamations and I wanted to see if he could do it and like I said I doubted it but but he did and and congratulations to him so it's 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 not a beautiful way to play golf it's it's not um shot making it's it's kind of just bludgeoning um and you know i i feel sad about that if that's really the way the game of golf is going but i also like i said it was impressive <laughs> to watch that and and uh so i don't know i i think it's still a little too early uh hopefully we don't overreact i still think um you know there there's some arrows in the quiver for the for the governing bodies if if all of a sudden we start to see um this style of golf render architecture and strategy obsolete then i i don't you know i i think the thing we've got to really like i said it's, i think it's still too early but we've got to be careful not to overreact because at the end of the day he did what he did but he putted beautifully yeah i mean he putted the crazy good and he and pitched short well game. and he had yeah, good iron play yes, yeah exactly and and you could see i mean for people who think that this somehow or some way dumbs down the game i if you watch him he's as smart as anybody he's trying to figure out every single advantage that he can get and he's thinking his way so, you know, we talk about architecture and strategy and thinking your way around a golf course he still did that 
his thinking is in a completely different direction. But when you look at, at the way he analyzed every single putt and he analyzed every single shot and he, in theory, you know, I haven't heard him say this directly, but he knew, like we said, to miss, if he if was going to miss, it was going to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, he, he still is a very, very cerebral golfer, even though he's gone in the direction of, of just trying to overpower a golf course. Yeah, and that's where I, I agree that, you know, we don't have to overreact to Bryson specifically, but I, I, I would hesitant, I'd be hesitant to call it an overreaction when we have all this data that shows how how advantageous it is to straight bomb it, and how many up and coming guys are doing this. Not to Bryson's extent, but you know, how, so, and how these majors are shaking out with the, just the such clear advantage that goes to hitting it very, very far and kind of a bit of a lost art of mid iron play and all kinds of things. That to your point, it makes me sad too. I just think that. You know, some of these guys are so much more talented than people even can know and appreciate, but we only see them hit hit wedges. And I, I just, you know, with the fact that there was all this discussion around no one hitting fairways and how and and you know, are they if they're so narrow, does that help bombers? I just was really curious to pick your brain to say like, hey, if we made it really wide, how would that change things? If we made it shorter and wider, how would that change things? And you know, scores might be lower, but do we get a more diverse skill set that would potentially win it? I, I, I just was wondering what you thought the the better answer was because I don't think it's make it even more narrow and make it even more long and grow the rough up even yeah. higher. <laughs> no, I, I agree, and I think that that's the beauty of our game is that it's contested on every single golf course is unique one from the other. It's not a uniform set of of setup. It's not a uniform set of presentation. It's not a uniform set of architecture. So. We will see. I mean, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to see him play. You know, obviously this year we didn't get to watch him play an open championship golf course. But, you know, when the wind blows and the ball is bouncing and running and taking all these kind of crazy bounces and kicks, does that change? Maybe. I I honestly don't know. I'm excited to watch him play Augusta. You know, is that a golf course he will overpower? Because you're right, that's a wide golf course. Most everybody's going to hit fairways there. Um you know, and it obviously requires an amazing amount of precision. But I mean, if he's hitting a wedge and somebody else is hitting a seven or eight iron, in theory, he should be able to be more precise with that. So it'll it'll be interesting to see. Like you said, I mean, the U.S. Open is what it is, and that setup is going to require or the or the golf courses like next year. Tory, we'll see narrow fairway. I mean, that's just the way that golf course has been designed and set up. I'm literally sitting at the country club. We're working on some green expansions here and I'm looking around and this place is scruffy and rugged and, um, you know, it's, it's narrow, but it's not, it's not wing foot narrow. Um, so that'll be a completely different test for these guys. So, you know, let's get it, let's let them get more of a track record. Um, like I said, I think the people are not really recognizing that, you know, how susceptible wing foot was to that. Uh, type of play with the greens like if he tried that at at, at pinehurst yeah um and was hitting to those crowned greens and wasn't as precise and the balls are running out and, you know if he's hitting out of the sandy scrubby stuff and the ball's running away as opposed to you know hitting into the green and staying it may be a completely different uh result so i think he came into Wingfoot as i said he's incredibly talented but cerebral he came into there believing obviously he's very confident in his abilities, but he came in there believing that that golf course would allow him to do that. Now he may believe that every golf course will do it, but we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. And that's what I guess was alarming to me was to your point of, you know, we'll see what happens in a British open when the ball's bouncing and all that. It's like the ball was bouncing out there and he was playing the slopes, right. And doing all that. And that's where I, 
I think it was just kind of like, whoa, if this style is working on a course that requires this many, you know, different kinds of shots, then that is especially alarming. But you said something interesting there. I wanted to, uh, you said the USGA may have some, some quivers, uh, that they are, are levers that they could pull <laughs> potentially. I'm curious as to what you think those levers, uh, might be that they could potentially pull, you know, to mitigate some of these things. Well, you know, we've got the distance report that's been out, and I guess it's going to be delayed another year now for more fact-finding and, and collecting of information and opinions and thoughts, et cetera. But I, I think everybody in the industry feels like at some point in time the distance is – something has to be done by the USGA and the RNA to, to regulate distance. And I don't know what the answer is there, whether it's the ball, it's the driver. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but I think everybody – you know, um, you People have been saying that Bryson is going to revolutionize the game and change the game and change the way it, but it, one of those outcomes might be that he actually changed it because he forced uh, the governing bodies to, to actually step up and do something about distance. So we'll see. I mean, I, I have no, I don't know what they're going to wind up doing, but I know there's been enough talk about it and, and that something will come out in the next year, year and a half. And it wouldn't surprise me based on if this, if he wins the Masters the same way, and or somebody else does the same thing next year at the U.S. Open or at the at the Open Championship, that we don't see some momentum not only uh, from the governing bodies, but just from you know, the golf community uh, to say, wait a second, yeah. you know, is this really what we want the game to be? Well, help me explain this, you know, better than uh, I've tried to explain this in the past, and I think it would make me maybe make more sense coming from you, someone that specifically designs courses like this. But I think a lot of people, what they don't understand about the distance debate is that is how much effort and consideration goes into the hazards and intended stra- intended strategy of a hole from the tee, right? Especially, you know, back in in, in the past. And uh, saying like, hey, this has been here for 90 years, and this has been the goal that the architect had was like, hey, either wrap it around this bunker or take the risk of flying it, etc. And when a player is able to bypass all of that challenge and and be, have it become a complete afterthought, it is a waste of one of the great joys of the game, I think, and that it's not something that you can you know, bring back or bring in just by lengthening it and, and putting in new tees. I, can you summarize that maybe better than I can, or maybe I did a better job than I think I do? <laughs> no, you, you, you did a great job. I, I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. And even... You know, the, the debate becomes that even if they don't fly over at all, let's say we move bunkers out to 360 and Bryson lands or, you know, I don't want to keep using Matt Wolf or, or Gary Woodland or Dustin Johnson, whoever hits it a long way, winds up in that bunker. There's still, unless we make the golf hole 580 yard par four, there's still only hitting a wedge or a nine iron out of that bunker. And now, now what do you have to do? Make the bunker 12 feet deep? You know, so it's one of those things that, that you're right. I mean, they're, they're basically watering down the opportunity for the architect to influence the way the way the golf course is played because they're either stretching things out so far that okay if we put a bunker at 360 now what ha- what about the guy who hit it th- hits a 300 yeah. well now he doesn't have the strategy or the thought or now you got to put a bunker at 300 and 360 so it's a, there's a ripple and domino effect and that's why I say let's not get too far ahead of ourselves right now in thinking that okay this is the way the game is going to be played by everybody. Um, you know, it, there's an amazingly wide spectrum. I think the people who are knowledgeable about the distance debate really always point to the fact that what is truly happening is that the gap between what the way they play the game and the way the rest of us play the game is just, it's getting miles apart. 
Yeah. You know, it used to not be that far apart. Now it's getting miles apart. And okay, how do we design for those two very now becoming very disparate groups? And and what do we have to do within the confines of a golf course? And, and also, the other part of the the thing is is that we're talking about a very small fraction of golf courses that these guys are going to play. Right. You know, it's not like uh, your your local municipal or your local great members course that's 6,600 yards and everybody loves and has fun on is you know, they got to start looking around to add, you know, 500 yards of length. No, that, you know, it's, it's just this very select group of courses that, that we have, that have to have this conversation. Yeah. And, and switching gears a little bit here, but you know, you talked about Pinehurst kind of being a completely different kind of test and it will have different defenses uh, than say what we saw at a Wingfoot. What about LA, LA Country Club that we're going to see here in a couple of years as well, due to you know, like the turf they have there and the runoffs there? What will what will that challenge look like for the pros? Yeah, I think that that's an interesting setup issue or, or conversation to have. I mean, Bermuda Rough um, in the summer, in, in or certainly in June in LA, I think could be fairly challenging. The ball will certainly settle down in, and you know, I don't know what height they're going to have it come out at, but the rough can certainly be penal. I think one of the great things about LACC is um, there's significant fairway contour and I mean, elevation change and pitch from side to side. Wingfoot has that, but in by and by it's fairly flat golf course. So, I mean, the, you know, the cross slopes are going to be maybe five or six feet. Whereas at LA, you look at a hole like the 13th hole, you use like 20 feet, you know, your ball starts rolling and it doesn't stop until it gets into the rough on, on certain holes out there. So, and I think part of what what George Thomas did when he designed that golf course is very few fairway bunkers because he wanted, you know, the fairways to be the hazard. You know, you got to control your ball to keep it on the proper side, left or right, and 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 utilize you know play with or against the slope. So I think, given Southern California, the you know it'll be June, it'll be dry, it should be firm. You know I think that's going to be a completely different part of the examination. While it, it will be wider because it needs to be, uh, the effective width of the fairways is actually going to be pretty narrow. And and then if it's feeding it into some fairly dense, uh, thick Bermuda rough. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they how they can handle that. Yeah, it's a lot different playing out of Bermuda Rough than it is playing out of what the rye or the bluegrass or whatever that is up there at, uh, yeah. at Wingfoot. <laughs> I would imagine. Um, I, I meant to shoehorn this question in. We were talking about the greens, but I, I want to hear a little bit more about that first green um, and whether or not there was any discussion, you know, about softening that green some, the, the the bold contours of it, and kind of what the philosophy is on starting a golf course with the green is bold and uh, yeah, it, it required different maintenance. I understand this past week compared to the other green. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about uh, the first green. Yeah, it was. Um, so one of the things we, we tried to work really hard on was uh, again, Neil Regan pulled out some great old photographs was to restore those edge hole locations. So you certainly saw it on, uh, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, two on the left and one on the one on the right. The one on the first round was in a bowl that was restored right in the middle and proved to be, I mean, it was the first time in the history of the any U.S. Open at, at, at Wingfoot where the first hole actually played under par. I think the scoring average was 3.9 something, which will tell you a little bit about, you know, how soft the, the, the greens were and how soft that hole location was. But I think, you know, by restoring the edge holes, we were able to kind of put them in the little bowls which allowed um, the severity of the green not to need them to change the way it was played, you know, the way it was presented very much. In 2006, the green was two feet slower on the stint meter. Hmm. 
And so that was, that's a noticeable change for anybody, let alone a tour pro. But I think, and I know for a fact this year, it was about half a foot at its, at its biggest peak. I mean, it, it got closer and closer. So by the end of the end of the week, it was running in the same range as the rest of the greens. I think the first day it, it was maybe half a foot slower than, than the slowest other green. So they, they worked hard. We worked hard as a team to not, to make that green so that they didn't have to um, maintain it differently. And I think we were successful in that regard, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's winged foot. It's a, um, you know, there, there's no let up there and it's kind of, okay, welcome, welcome to a, to a really difficult test. And I think Tilling has to hit you between the eyes, right, right off the, with that first green. Yeah. That was one of the most fun, fun holes to watch and fun greens to watch. But uh, we're going to let you out of here on this. Got to ask, I'll combine two questions into one here, but uh, about sure. two projects you have uh, ongoing or coming up, or, or I guess you can update us on the status of it, but one being the National Links Trust Project in D.C. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that as well as uh, what you've got going in Nebraska. Yeah, so thanks. We um, So the National Links Trust Project, um, we're going to be in charge of uh, the plant, the project at rock creek park which was originally a william flynn golf course Um, a lot of the holes have been abandoned or kind of grown grown over Um, we're working hard to to restore some of the playing corridors there i think the you know the trees have become had a significant impact on that but it looks like uh when we're all said and done we're we're really going to work hard to get a get a full nine hole uh golf course and a nine hole par three and, and and a really good driving range to kind of serve some of the what we feel are the important needs for for public golf is you know quick rounds of golf so nine holes will certainly suffice uh par three will will help introduce people to the game and then obviously a great place for people to go and practice and i know that uh, will smith and mike mccartan from national links trust are trying to get it to be kind of a really cool you know goat hill kind of vibe where it's a place you want to be so we're we're excited about you know restoring reclaiming that space and then um we also have a similar project. I'll, I'll go off one more. Uh, West Palm Beach. We're going to be right. uh, rebuilding uh, the West Palm Beach Municipal Golf Course, and we're really excited about that. I think it, you know, with the sand, it's got a, an opportunity to be very uh, sort of uh, Melbourne sand belty looking golf course, and and so I think that's going to be also a great community asset. And then the uh, the Caprock Ranch in Nebraska. The golf course is finished. Uh, it was all seated about three weeks ago. Uh, it's yeah, it's an amazing, amazing piece of ground. We have the uh, you know the sand hills, not quite the big chop, um, but some really nice rolling ground. And then we have uh, eight holes that play along the edge of a 200 foot canyon that drops down to the the Snake River in Nebraska. So it's uh, it's a very, very different site for you know what people think of when they think of sand hills uh, area golf. So we're excited about, we're excited about how that's come along and that should probably open sometime next August. So yeah, we're, we're, we're really fortunate. we got a lot of great stuff going on and uh, you know, it's like I said, we're, I'm here at the country club. So we're getting this place ready to, to host in about 20 months. I keep thinking it's two years, but it's actually not. It's a little bit shorter than that. That's right. Yeah. You're truly one of the busiest guys I know. I don't know how, how you do all this, but uh, really appreciate you. I got a lot. Sorry, I got a lot of great guys working with me. I mean, I really do. And that's the only way this whole thing gets held oh, together. Boy. But yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, I don't know how you get anything done when you have Wagner around, though, because we experienced some of that last year at Pinehurst. And man, that guy... 
That guy is uh, uh, is a hoot. That's for sure. So. He is the best. Yeah, he, he's funny and great, and and but amazing. Like the most talented guy I know in our business. That was what you know. He was kind of an he's an entertainer, and then as soon as it was time to switch gears to talk about sod and soil and all that, it was like, whoa, okay, yeah, you're not just. Like you're very, very clearly a uh, professional, but uh, also maybe a professional yeah. entertainer. So <laughs> that he is. So. Well, Gil, thanks for taking the time. I know it's been a, a crazy couple weeks uh, for you, but actually that might just be normal for you for for what, what well, we're used to. But it, it was a good time, and thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I always do. You guys do a great job. I really enjoy listening to you. Thanks, Gil. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Cheers. Bye. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect 